0: My name is Jim Midget. I'm one of the associate pastors here at HCC. And if you haven't had an opportunity yet to go to the Jesus to the Nations conference that's happening down at Mount St. Vincent University, um, I suggest that you go this afternoon. The session starts at 2.30, I believe. Uh, I went last night, and it was a really good time. And I wasn't really expecting a whole lot out of it, and I got a whole lot more than I, than I expected because I expected very little the speaker last night, and I apologize, I can't remember his name, he said something that really hit me. And he said, in your Christianity, in your faith, if everything is really easy, if things are going really, really well, and there's no trouble, there's no problems, and things are just really easy, are you really following Jesus? That question cut deep. It kind of hurt a little bit, actually. You know, I got to thinking about my life, I got to thinking about my Christian walk. I can tell you that I've never always taken Christianity seriously. I've never always taken my faith seriously. I've never always been able to approach a song like the one that we just sang and sung it truthfully. There's a time not that long ago, in fact, back when I was in high school, uh, I had a bunch of friends, I've talked about them before, Uh, There's four of them, four other guys, and myself. My mom used to say that she either had no son or five sons, because we'd spend so much time together. Uh, We were always at each other's houses, and a couple of those guys were Christians, but some of them weren't. And there's this one guy in particular. His name was Corey. And Corey had a very keen mind. His dad was a lawyer. He actually eventually became a lawyer himself. Uh, He travels all over the world. Fighting environmental battles or something like that. I didn't really understand what he said when he told me, but hey, he's he's a lawyer, he's got a keen mind. That's what you should take away from this. But he's also an agnostic. You've never heard that term before. An agnostic is someone who chooses not to choose. They believe that there's not enough evidence to point towards any particular God, let alone the Christian God, or not enough evidence to suggest that there is no God either so they just choose not to choose. There's no no point in choosing because we can't tell which is which. And you know, my, my dad was a pastor, so I've always been a Christian, even if I was a nominal one for a lot of years. And in high school, I, I didn't take my faith very seriously, but every once in a while, it would flare up in a moment of passion. And Corey and I, we were rehearsing for a one-act play. We were by ourselves, and after this rehearsal was done. We just got to goofing around and chatting and stuff like that, as you're, you will with your buddies. And eventually, the conversation turned a little bit more serious and we started talking about faith and matters of faith. And Corey, he had some great questions. And I was able to answer some of them, but for the most part, I was ill-equipped to, to answer his questions. And eventually, he got to one that was much more serious than the others. He said, Jim, I know an awful lot about an awful lot of religions. I know a lot about Christianity too, and from what you've told me, from what I've read, and what I've seen in my own life. And he asked this question that lingers with me to this day. How is Jesus different than any other religion? How is Jesus different than any other religion? <coughs> if you think about it, if you stack it up, and you look at the morality of religions, <coughs> and the morality of how we are all supposed to live, there really isn't a lot of difference between the religions. The morality of it's the same. Essentially, it boils down to the golden rule, right? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Pretty much all religions teach that. You know, I had a couple of really standard Christian answers that I gave him that really, really were terrible. Uh, I don't know if you know any of these at all. Uh, I'm guilty of saying them, but honestly, they don't help. Stuff like, oh, well, Christianity's a faith, not a religion. Well, no, it is a religion, too. And and those, those pat answers didn't help. In fact, they threw a whole lot more confusion into the conversation. we both left that night without answers. And I want to ask that question today. How is Jesus different than any other religion? How is Jesus different than any other religion? Hopefully, when we come away from here today, we're going to have a really good answer to that. All along, we've been in the book of Luke, and we're going to stay in the book. Luke for the whole year, so you get used to it. (laughs) Right now we're in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. So if you have the Bible, flip it open. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Last week we were discussing communion. We were discussing the Last Supper that Jesus had with his followers. And Jesus has just shared some very inspirational words. He's just shared some very mystical words to them as well, things they didn't understand. Afterwards, there, there was an argument that broke out about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and he kind of calmed all that down and refocused the disciples on what they should be thinking about. He gave Peter a couple of warnings about what was about to happen to him, about Peter's denial of Jesus. He even told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, which is a terrifying prospect to think about it. Then eventually, they all got up together and they left. Now, I want you to imagine a long, hard weekend. Not hard for a lot of us, right? A lot of work has been done. You put into a lot of preparation a meal for yourself and for a large group of people. Your leader, your, your good friend, who, who you respect and you love dearly, has said a lot of strange things to you. A lot of worrisome things to you. And you don't fully understand what's going on. He keeps saying that he's going to be betrayed and, and so you're confused, and you're arguing with others, and you're saying, well, what's going on? What's, how is this going to play out? And you're tired. You're tired emotionally. You're tired physically. You've had a big meal, a little bit of wine. You're tired. And so you go out to this nice wooded area. Now, I want you to imagine the woods at night, not not the scary, creepy part of, like, eyes blinking in the dark and things. But I want you to, to imagine the quiet and the still. You can hear the crickets. You can hear or ducks on the lake, or or whatever that that stillness is that's in the woods. And this is what we're talking about. Jesus gathers his disciples and they go to the Mount of Olives. Uh, This is verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, Jesus used the Mount of Olives as kind of like a home base whenever he was in Jerusalem. It's this nice, safe, secluded, wooded area that people didn't really know about. They couldn't reach him at any time. He went there to, to hide or to, to reflect or to be alone. I like to think of it kind of as Sherwood Forest was for Robin Hood. This is what it, sort of the example that we have. But when Jesus brings them all together in that nice, secluded spot... He asks them to pray. And of all the things that He asks them to pray for, He asks them to pray that they will not fall into temptation. He wants to safeguard the faith and the following of His people. He wants to make sure that their hope is secure and strong. That their faith is strong. And this is the first thing we notice in how Jesus is different from all the other religions. Jesus demonstrates that His primary concern... It's for other people. Of all the things that Jesus could ask them to pray for, think about what he's about to do. He tells them to pray that they themselves do not fall into temptation. But what kind of temptation is he talking about here? Why is this the prayer that the disciples are supposed to pray? We're told in Jude 20 that prayer builds our faith. In James 5, it says that prayers offered in faith are powerful things that help build us up and help demonstrate the action and the power of God. Prayer is important. Prayer will safeguard us against temptation. It's a vehicle for action for God. And He will absolutely respond. So the act of praying in itself will help bend off temptation. That's great. That's simple. But I think the disciples are facing temptations that that we may not be familiar with, or at least on the surface. The first thing that probably popped into your mind when I said temptation is some of the easy sins to identify, right? You know, we talk about lust, or we talk about, I don't know, alcohol abuse or drug abuse. We talk about selfishness, that type of thing. And whenever we say, you know, guard yourself against temptation, that's usually what we, we want to build ourselves up against. But I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to say to the disciples in that moment. You see, the temptations that they face, we're, we're aware of. In just a few short verses, we see Peter denying who Jesus is. We see Peter going back on his word with Jesus, about, I will fall into the grave if I have to, Jesus. No, he didn't so much do that. Jesus had been making all kinds of promises. All of the disciples had heard him say, if you tear this building down, if you tear this temple down, it will be rebuilt in three days. He promises that He will never leave them. He will never forsake them. He promises a lot of things to them. And in the darkest moments, in Him going to the cross, all of His disciples, except for John, abandon Him. The temptation that these disciples are facing is not our standard, regular, run-of-the-mill temptations. The temptation that they're facing is disbelief in the Word of God. The temptation is not to obey The temptation is not to place their hope and their trust in the future that God promises them. And so he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Pray that you will trust the word of God. Pray that you will trust my promises. Another interesting thing. We read in the other Gospels when Jesus comes back to them and discovers that they've fallen asleep quite a few times. That's understandable why they fall asleep. They're tired. It's been a long day. And they're worried and all that stuff. But he comes back to them and he says, why aren't you praying? Why are you sleeping? We see something that's very, very important. Sometimes it's important for us to deny ourselves for the sake of something spiritual. I can tell you, I can... I can resonate with the disciples on being tired. Um, My wife and I just had a baby just two weeks ago. And let me tell you, I get what tired is now. I understand. And there is a significant temptation there. There's a temptation to let work go undone. There's a temptation to neglect my spiritual needs so that I can take a nap. And it's a strong temptation. But sometimes the spiritual is far more important than the physical. Sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes. And this is one of those moments. Jesus needs the whole group praying. He wants them to remain strong. To resist the temptation to ignore the spiritual things that are going on in the world. Right at that moment in favor of sleep. And then Jesus does something absolutely fascinating to me. In verse 41, it says this. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and he prayed. This is one of those verses that if we're not looking carefully, we could blow right past and miss all kinds of meaning. Think about it. Jesus goes a stone's throw away from his disciples. Why didn't he just kneel down with his disciples and start praying with them? If he comes back later and is annoyed that they fell asleep, why didn't he just stay there and pray with them and lead them through a wonderful prayer? Why did he go off by himself? Jesus distances himself from his friends. And there's a lot of reasons to do this. Maybe he didn't want to be distracted by them. Maybe he just wanted to get his head around what was about to happen, and so he needed to focus. That's all possible. But consider this. Jesus is in the last moments before trouble strikes. He's in the calm before the storm. He knows exactly what is coming. He knows about the betrayal. He knows about the cross. He knows about a lot that is about to happen to Him. And it is a crisis of immeasurable proportions. And it's bearing down on Him. And instead of gathering His faithful followers together, instead of holding hands with them or asking for a hug, or trying to pass some of that burden off to them, he goes off by himself and prays to his one and only source of strength, God. He connects himself to God directly. He puts his anxiety, his fear, his pain, his trust, his hope, everything, squarely on the shoulders of God, and doesn't spread that around to his friends and family. In 1 Peter 5, verse 7, it says, cast all of your anxiety on Him, on God. Because He cares for you. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for us, when we face crisis, to go off and to, and to have to be by ourselves and to not trust in our friends and our family and good Christian people. That is not what I'm saying. But when crisis comes our way, who do we put our hope and our faith and our trust in? I mean, really, when you dig down deep, do we put our hope and our faith and our trust squarely on the shoulders of God, and everything else is incidental? Or do we have all of our friends and family come around us and support us, and we put our hope and our trust and our faith kind of in that they will feed us, and then we emergency call God and say, hey, if you can do anything about this, that would be super. But if not, don't worry about it, because I've got these guys. Really? It's not wrong for us to look for support in those closest to us. It's not sinful to take care of each other. In fact, as the body of Christ, it is our duty to take care of each other as much as we can. So that people are free to be with God and to have that interaction with God. So that they don't have to worry about cooking a meal or, or about childcare or, or whatever it is. We're supposed to support each other in that way so that they can be connected directly with God. That's the point. What makes Jesus different? His strength, His will comes directly from God and from no one else. That makes Jesus different. And then look at how He prays here in verse 42. Father, if You are willing, take this cup from Me. Yet not My will, but Yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to Him and strengthened Him. And being in anguish, He prayed all the more earnestly... And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you ever really looked at his prayer? Think about it. Let's put it in modern language. He goes to God, he looks at him, and he says, God, you know what? This is a little much. This is too much. I don't want to do this, God. It's a little scary. Take this away from me. That's what he's saying. Lord, take this cup from me. What makes Jesus different? He didn't want to do the job. He was terrified. He was afraid. And we know this because of how he reacted. He was sweating drops of blood. And I think we get to see a tremendous moment of weakness for our own benefit. I really believe that. You know, you and I, we may not have to face taking on the sin of the world like Jesus did. But that doesn't mean that we don't have crises in our own lives. A crisis of immeasurable proportions can come at us at any time. And it's different for all of us. We're all built differently. We're all wired differently. We all have different thresholds of pain and ability to cope with stress. And I don't know what your crisis is. Maybe maybe you've been out of work for a really long time and it's just starting to wear on you. Maybe you have a very sick spouse... Or a really sick child. Maybe you've been trying to get pregnant for for years now. Perhaps you've been fighting with your team with what seems like forever and there is no relief in sight. Maybe you're facing a major life change. Or maybe you've been diagnosed with a disease. And like Jesus, you may feel like it's too much. It's too heavy. It's way too much. And sometimes you just want to cry out to God and say, I can't do this. This is way too much for me. you know, sometimes, sometimes I think we feel guilty in praying like that to God. You know, somewhere along the line, we got ourselves wired to think that we're not allowed to want release from suffering. You know, Christ warns us that we are going to suffer in our lives, but He doesn't say that we should eagerly anticipate suffering. He doesn't say that when these things come along, that we should just suck it up and endure it, and don't let it any out, and don't let that stress off. He doesn't say that at all. Sometimes I think we don't allow ourselves the freedom to talk to God honestly about what's going on. And that we shouldn't feel bad about talking to God about what's truly happening in our hearts. You know, sometimes these crises that come is not some sort of great blessing. It's horrible. And it hurts. How do we ask God about these things? How do we tell God about these things? You know what works for me? Yelling at the top of my lungs. I'm not kidding. Just let it out. And I think God is okay with that. Because he created the entire universe. I think he can handle a five-minute yelling smash with me. You know, uh, many of you know I have diabetes. I've had it for years. I remember the day that I was officially diagnosed with it. And this may not seem like a big deal to you. And maybe you could have handled this a lot better than I did. But I can tell you this was a crisis in my own life. A crisis of immeasurable proportions. I had never had to face a real sickness before. Of course I've been sick, but I've never had to face a life-changing sickness. And in all honesty, if you have to have one major thing wrong with you, health-wise, in your life, diabetes isn't the worst thing. It's completely manageable, you know, a lot of people have it, I bet you there's going to be a cure before long, but for me, I noticed that things were changing. I had lost a lot of weight in a very short period of time, and it was alarming. Some friends looked at me and said, You know, you may want to go to a doctor, you're looking a little thin. Uh, And normally that would be good news, but in this case, you know, it was like 60 pounds in in two weeks. Uh, I was constantly thirsty, you know, I was constantly tired, I had to go to the washroom all the time. And so eventually I gave in and went to the doctor. And uh, I remember the day that I got the diagnosis, I went into the doctor, I sat down in front of him. And he said, one of the worst things I think I've ever heard come out of a doctor's mouth what do you think you have?
1: <laughs> Why am I here?
0: Eventually, <laughs> he told me that, we had, that I had diabetes. And uh, being a man, I, I didn't want to express that this bothered me in any way. And I sat and I said, hmm, yeah, it's diabetes. And we, we chatted and I put on a brave face. And I went up to the car after that was all done where my, my friend Zach, my roommate, he was waiting there he had driven me to the doctor. I got in the car and I sat down. And no sooner had I sat down than the reality of it all hit. The life change that I was going to have to go through. The fact that I wasn't able to eat the foods that I loved eating. Um, The way that I spent time with my friends was going to have to change. My lifestyle was going to have to change. Everything was going to have to change. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And in that moment, in that moment, I just broke down. I couldn't take it. It was too much. And I was crying and I was yelling at God, and I was like, I need you to heal me. I need you to take this away from me right this instant because this is too much for me to handle. And, you know, I was, I was bargaining with him. I was doing all the stuff that we would normally do when you're in that moment of crisis. My poor roommate Zach was sitting there watching this thing all unfold in front of him. And all he could really do was stick out his hand and pat me on the back. And he's like, they're there. <laughs> I was in there for a good five, maybe ten minutes, just, just pouring it all out. And at some moment during all that, God came near to me. And he, he didn't take away my diabetes. He didn't change my mind about the difficulty of change and all that stuff that was coming. But He gave me just a little bit of strength. And And I, I stopped crying. And I just got of you know... Well, everybody knows what it's like after the have been for a long time. <laughs> right? And I stopped, and I just breathed a few breaths, and I just knew it was going to be okay. That's it. That's all that happened. Nothing major. And my friend Zach, seeing that the crisis had kind of passed, he again patted me on the back and said, Come on, let me go buy you a Slurpee. <laughs> Sometimes I think we're afraid, too, of how God is going to respond to us, right? If we burst out with, with emotion and we're totally honest with Him about how we feel about this crisis that's in our lives, we're afraid that He's going to come at us with a lecture. We're afraid that He's going to pull some sort of Old Testament stunt and say, You think it's bad now? <laughs> but God doesn't leave Jesus alone. Take a look at verse 43 one more time. An angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him. God doesn't leave Jesus alone. He doesn't do those things that I said. He doesn't give him a lecture. He doesn't even empower the disciples to get up from where they're sitting and come over and give Jesus a hug and you know, sing kumbaya and all that stuff. God doesn't swoop in and remove all the problems. He doesn't do any of that. In fact, he strengthens Jesus to do something else. Verse 44 This is after the angel has strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. God empowered Jesus to carry on and to be just a little bit more honest and to be a little bit more open. And to trust God just a little bit more. That is what God did. To carry him through the crisis. He didn't swoop in and save the day like some kind of comic book superhero. He gave him the strength to carry on and to be more honest with God. And his anguish was so intense that he was sweating so hard. The anxiety was causing him to shake and to sweat and blood came out. That's how intense he was, he was afraid, and he was concerned. For Jesus, God helps him get over that hump. And Jesus even prays, not my will, but yours be done. Which is incredible. How is Jesus different? Jesus was completely terrified. He didn't want to do it. Jesus asked that the cup be removed. And last week, we we had talked about communion, we had talked about the Passover feast. And the very last cup that you're supposed to drink in the Passover feast is a cup for the Messiah, in anticipation of the Messiah's coming. Jesus didn't drink that cup. He said that I'm not going to drink again of this fruit until the kingdom of God has come. Which means that I am the Messiah. He doesn't drink in anticipation of his own arrival, he's already there. And perhaps this whole Messiah deal. Perhaps this, this is what he wants to be removed from you. But there is another cup that is well known in the Old Testament. This is the cup of the wrath of God. This is what God pours out onto sin. This is what is held in reserve for the sin of humanity. And it's described in great detail in both Jeremiah and Isaiah Take a look at Jeremiah twenty-five, fifteen. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me: Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send to you send you to drink it. If you take a look at the next chapter and the next chapter after that, it's filled with some fairly unpleasant things. The cup of wrath. Is a terrifying prospect. The wrath of God is what is reserved for sin. And Jesus sees this cup. He knows what it means, He knows what it is, and He's going to have to bear it. And He says, I don't want to bear that cup. If it's possible, let's do something else, God. How is Jesus different? He had to suffer to be our Savior. Wrath is what's waiting for sin. Jesus was was waiting to take on that cup of wrath. He was afraid. He was alone. And He alone was going to stem the tide of God's wrath. What a terrifying prospect. No wonder He was sweating blood. And you know, knowing this and understanding it a little bit better, I wish... I could go back in time and sit there with my friend Corey and talk to him about all this stuff? I wish these scriptures had come to my mind. I wish I had been a little bit more in tune with God and with His Spirit and was able to communicate with Him. Because in that moment, when Corey asked me, how is Jesus any different from any of the other religions? The answer is very, very simple. Jesus was completely human. He gets it. He knew exactly how to respond in these situations. He knew exactly what it was like to experience crisis. He knew exactly what it was like to experience heartache and betrayal. He knew exactly what it was like to celebrate and to have fun and to laugh and to cry and to do the whole gambit of human emotion. How was Jesus different? He was completely human. Except through His humanity, He did not sin. He had such a connection with God, he didn't allow himself to sin. He fended off temptation every single time through prayer. Every time. And through his humanity, he looked out, and on his knees there in the garden, perhaps he looked and saw his disciples sitting there, some men that he cared about dearly, and perhaps he decided to go through with it for them. But I think he looked out and saw some people suffering. I think he saw all of us suffering. And sin in our lives has enslaved us to suffering. Sin has enslaved us to hopelessness, and to fear, and to anxiety, and to pain. And Jesus looked at that on his knees, and through the tears and the pain, he saw the anguish in our eyes. He saw me standing before God, without the ability to pay for my own sins, with nothing but a sinful life to stand behind me, and I would have to bear the brunt of the wrath of God. And he took a look at that and said, no, that's not okay. He took a look at all of us who would have to stand before God one day and pay for these sins somehow, and experience a life of suffering and pain, of enslavement to sin. And he took a look at that and said, no, that's not okay. And there in the garden, on his knees, he took a look and said, I want my people. I want the people of this world whom I created, whom I love so dearly, who I know intimately. I want my people to live a life of freedom, of joy, of contentment. I want my people to stand before God and look at Him and say, Hi, Dad. And stand there unafraid. And stand there with nothing holding them back, and cry to Him, Abba, which means Father. That's what I want for my people. And Jesus got up from his knees, went over, and went through the whole process. And He bore the brunt of the wrath of God for the sin of all humanity, not just me, not just you. Think about how much sin has happened over the course of time. That's a lot. Think about the worst people in our history. He died for that sin. Think about the best people in our history. He died for their sins. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. But beyond that, he had victory over it. He didn't end the story there. He stood there and said, Now you can live and you can be free and you can be good. So go be good. Jesus is different because his self-sacrificing love is absolutely evident in his humanity. He desired us so much that he braved the wrath of God for us. And you know what? This is called grace. And it is the absolute foundation of our faith. Without it, we've got nothing. Without it, we've got a list of rules that are impossible to follow. He gave us grace, He gave us this gift. We're going to be singing a song here in a second that's about Jesus. It's called Jesus, Son of God, and it's a new song. While we sing it, I hope and I want us all to sing it as a prayer, to offer ourselves before God as a prayer, keeping Jesus in the center of it all. The song is going to describe. The act of grace and the act that Jesus did, and it will explain who He is. And let's use this as a prayer of submission, a prayer of thanksgiving for that gift that He gave us. We have a wonderful Savior who knows what it's like to be one of us. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to go through crisis. And He is totally and completely willing to come and to strengthen us if we would just let Him do it. We're going to sing about our savior Jesus.